For months, the media and the public have been focused on what's going to happen on Election Day, November 3rd. But not Tom Perez, the chairman of the Democratic National Committee. He, like political operatives on both sides, have been keeping an extraordinary close eye on early voting, and for good reason. By some estimates, more than 50 million Americans have already cast their ballots, either by mail or by showing up at polling stations that have opened weeks before the election. It's an astounding number that could change everybody's calculations about what's going to happen election night. We'll talk to Perez about these early voting numbers and what they could mean as we all watch the returns election night. And we'll talk with Yahoo political correspondent Andrew Romano about the Thursday night debate between President Trump and Joe Biden and how, if at all, it will affect the dynamics of the race during the final week on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. You know, I got to say, these early voting numbers are just off the charts. I I don't think anybody imagined that it was going to be this high. Why it's happening is, is interesting. I think it's just one gauge of just how motivated people are to vote in this election, that on top of concerns about showing up at the polls on election day because of COVID. But given that, uh, and we're going to discuss this with Perez, that the counting has already begun, especially in key battleground states like Florida and North Carolina. And um, it completely throws off, or it certainly threw me off, as to how quickly we could learn what uh, the results are on the election, given that the early voting numbers will already have been counted. Yeah, that's a, a really important point, because, of course, you know, one of the things we've been saying all along is the possibility that this election uh, would you know, drag on for days or weeks um, after November 3rd, given how uh, Donald Trump has been willing to do all sorts of things to try to undermine confidence in our voting system and to suggest that this election would be rigged if he loses, you know, it would make it a lot harder for him to do that. And, and that is an important. And just one final point on this, which is when when we realized that you know that there would you know a lot of people wouldn't be able to go to the polls or want to go to the polls because of the pandemic that was back in i think april and actually our john ward wrote about that really before anybody else did uh, but at the time one of the things we were all thinking was that the states you know so many states around the country didn't actually have laws in place that would allow this kind of early mail in balloting and i have to say one thing that you know might might restore a little bit of confidence in our um, kind of our, our civic abilities, is that many, many states did actually pass laws and make it easier for people to vote by mail. And that is a, uh, I think that's something that we should be 
you know, I think pretty encouraged. Are, are you by, saying but, that there are state legislatures out there that actually acted in with civic purpose uh, to advance <laughs> the democratic process? I know, uh, I know, it is uh, it is counterintuitive, but yeah, you know, it it does happen in the states sometimes. It it does not happen very much in the federal government, but here we are. But look, before we get to all of those issues surrounding the presidential election, uh, we had. Our last final debate between uh, President Trump and uh, Joe Biden last night in Nashville, Tennessee. And for the last, uh, for all of the debates, uh, Romano, uh, who's joining us, has been writing the sort of takeaway piece at the end, breaking down, um, you know, the sort of meaning of of the debate and and the impact it'll have and, and the sort of big moments. And so let's go through it with uh, with Andrew. Um I just want to kind of tick through your four takeaways from last night's debate, starting with the first one, which is that the headline is Trump softens his approach but struggles to nail his closing argument. And we obviously saw a a more restrained and somewhat more subdued Trump yesterday. I think for a combination of reasons, I think partly it was the mute button that uh, the debate commission instituted, but I think it was also that Trump actually went in with a strategy to uh, be a little bit more restrained, which he was, particularly in the first half of the debate. He got a little bit more raucous later on. But I think your second point here, that he just was not able to to, to make a kind of a closing, a coherent closing argument, is actually the more important one. So talk about that. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to overemphasize Trump finds new tone um, because I think that's kind of facile uh, punditry. And I agree with you that he went in for strategic reasons, simply because the polls and his advisors agreed that the first debate was a disaster for him. So he wasn't going to do that again. But as you mentioned, I think the important point here is that he really couldn't find a closing argument. And I don't know if I want to overstate how much he could have changed if he could have found a closing argument. But I did think there was a moment in the debate where he kind of touched on something that might have worked for him if he had been emphasizing it for the last month. It was this, it was, the, I think it was the very last question of the night. He said, he was asked kind of what he would say in his, you know, second inaugural to Americans. Um, he didn't really answer that, but he did say, we have to make our country totally successful as it was prior to the plague, quote unquote, coming in from China, quote unquote. We had the best black unemployment numbers in the history of our country, Hispanic, Asian women, people with diplomas, with no diplomas. Everybody had the best numbers. Success is going to bring us together and we are on the road to success. And then he you know, said that if Biden were elected, he would raise taxes and, and hurt the economy. I basically think his best chance or maybe we should put this in the past tense, his best chance would have been to emphasize that for the last month, instead of calling Kamala Harris a monster, saying Joe Biden should be locked up, talking about Hunter Biden's emails, retweeting conspiracy theories, uh, dismissing COVID-19. So you saw the glimpse of like an argument that might've been somewhat effective for him, but it was sort of the exception that proved the rule because the rest of the debate was kind of just all over the place. I did think that where he was most effective was in, and he did this over and over again last night, was in depicting Joe Biden as this career politician who'd been in Washington for 47 years, who'd been in the vice president for eight years and hadn't gotten much done, 
And th that was the one kind of debating point that I felt like he was able to stick with uh, throughout the night. It's just that it comes a little bit late in the game to make yeah, that I argument. Mean They've been making the case, he has been making the case and those around him that Joe Biden, you know, they repeat 47 years all the time. It's a, it's a sort of dog whistle about Biden's age, but it also is meant to uh, emphasize the fact that he's a creature of Washington. Trump accused him again and again of not getting anything done. I, I, I think he did stick to that talking point, so it showed some strategy on his part. I just don't know that it's particularly effective for an incumbent president polls show that people are wondering why he didn't do more on COVID-19, for example, that he hasn't made progress on health care. When you're the incumbent president, it's sort of hard to make the case that your challenger is the one who is the creature of Washington. Because, he, right, because, he, wants, because he wants to run as an insurgent, the way right. he did in 2016. He wants to run against Hillary Clinton, basically. Yeah. And, yeah. He, and we saw that with the, all the talk about corruption. He's trying to do what worked for him in 2016, except it's 2020 now. And right. I thought Biden's remark, it was sort of in a different context, but he said he's a very confused guy. He thinks he's running against someone else, had a real grain of truth in it. He hoped he, hoped he was running against someone else. And mm -hmm. frankly, like this stuff is not really sticking to Biden in the polls. I thought that the, uh, you know, it was clear that the Trump camp wanted to do as much as it could on the Hunter Biden email story as sort of a metaphor for Biden corruption. And, uh, you know, they brought this guy, Tony Pawlinski, to the debate. He is the former business partner of Hunter Biden, who has um, apparently validated some of the emails that uh, the media writ large has been reluctant to write or report much on. But I didn't think it worked. I think Trump's attacks on this were too scattershot. They were too confusing. I don't think most voters really understood what he was talking about. And also, I thought Biden, with some help from Kristen Welker, who I did think did a masterful job of moderating the debate, was able to deflect them allowing Biden to sort of, you know, start talking immediately about Trump's taxes and put Trump on the defensive on the taxes when he was trying to be on the offense on the Hunter Biden emails. Yeah, I think in everything that Trump does politically, there's a certain amount of projection and, it, and it's worked it's worked for him in some it worked for him in 2016 for example that is that he's been accused of corruption and so he accuses his opponent his opponent of it saying they're just essentially they're just as bad as me and that's what he's been trying to do with Biden but as you pointed out Mike I think the problem was Trump assumed a level of knowledge of incredibly convoluted and unclear storylines about Hunter Biden and laptops and Ukraine and Moscow and China that most viewers just don't have. Unless you're watching Fox News 24-7 every <laughs> single day or listening right. to Skullduggery. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, you know, you know what, not, not to be like too, uh, too uh, self-referential here, but it did remind me a little, I, I was actually, I was thinking about like a when we were all back at Newsweek, some file from one of us reporters on one of these like incredibly intricate, complicated investigative stories. And we would like, you know, single space, thousands of words, give it to Evan Thomas and he would figure out what it all meant. But most people can't figure that shit out. 
No, I mean, it's, it, I frankly had a hard time understanding what he was talking about. And this, it's my job to follow this stuff. The, the fact is, we don't really know a lot of details about the Hunter Biden laptop and Trump. And I will say this about both of them. Neither of them do a particularly good job of boiling down uh, a story or a narrative and explaining it to people who are watching at home. They kind of both assume a certain amount of knowledge on the part of the, the viewer that, that most people just don't have. Someone like Barack Obama is very, very good at making things very clear and very simple. And frankly, that whole discussion about corruption, I think there's probably some Trump supporters, big fans of his who would love that. Most other people are not going to understand what he was even talking now, about. Now, that said, as we speak, uh, Senator Ron Johnson, the chairman of the Homeland Security Committee, has just released that he has been told by the lawyers for Tony Bobolinsky, the former business partner of Hunter Biden, that the FBI has asked to interview him and asked for copies of his phones and emails. And, you know, look, I don't know. That's coming from Johnson. The FBI is not going to confirm that they are doing an investigation. But this does sort of, you know, get, you know, somewhere in the territory of the Hillary Clinton emails in the last it, week or so. Look, it doesn't yeah. touch Joe Biden. I mean, the Journal did their story, which and they reviewed the emails. They reviewed. Right. And there's no zero evidence, in fact, to the contrary, that it involved Joe Biden. So well, I don't well, see... Well, just, just to be particular on the facts here, they said that the emails themselves don't implicate Joe Biden, but Bobolinsky has, uh, has reportedly said, and this is actually in the journal story, that he met with Joe Biden, along with Hunter Biden, James Biden, Biden's brother, in which they had a discussion about these uh, investments in uh, in China or doing business with this Chinese energy company. So we don't know. I'm, you know, we do have to be cautious about all this because it's incredibly murky. But you know, one takeaway I have from this is that if there is really an FBI investigation, it could become a headache for a Biden Justice Department down the road. But I just throw that out there yeah. as uh, I'll be something. To see. Yeah, I'll be interested yeah. to see how the facts develop and, and, and I'll be reading your reporting on that, Mike. I think politically <laughs> okay. it's it's too late to I, I, I just I, to go back to the point we made in the intro, 50 yeah. million people have voted already. And we're right. not going to know what's happening here. And most people don't think of Joe Biden as a corrupt figure the way that maybe they thought of Hillary Clinton. So I just think it's a very different situation. Yeah, yeah. So no, one, I agree with that. One, yeah. Just one uh, final point I wanted to make about the debate, and, and this, this is really your point, talking about the, the empathy gap widening. And I think it was an important one. And I think Biden was skillful in coming out of that corruption conversation, and I think it was about China, where he said, you know, all of this malarkey, you know, it's not about your family, it's not about my family, it's about the American fam American families. And I just thought that he did that over and over again. And the contrast to Trump was striking because there were multiple opportunities when Trump could have shown empathy. And he he's just, he's lacking that gene. Uh, and and yeah. the, the best example of it, I think, yeah, I was just going to point out that you pointed to the whole exchange over the 545 yeah. kids 
who were separated from their parents and um, still don't know are still separated from their from their parents. Yeah, I thought it was. I thought this was really striking, and it, it it's kind of the meta point that you sometimes lose when you're focusing on particular moments or a horse race. That again and again, Trump kind of just played into Biden's hands on this point. I mean, it's Biden's main selling point. He's empathetic. He feels your pain. He cares about people like you. And instead of trying to show that he cared or that he could experience empathy, Trump just did the opposite again and again. And I thought the 545 children was the most striking moment. This is a story that basically upsets everyone in America. It's not a partisan thing. The idea that children would be taken from their parents and then unable to find them again, potentially separated forever, is just heartbreaking. Trump was asked about that, and he basically said they're so well taken care of because they're in facilities that are clean. Biden just looked flabbergasted and indignant. It was, I gotta say, it was really creepy. I mean, to me, it may, I don't, you know... It's just not, it's not a hard one. It's not a hard one to express sympathy for children who can't find their parents. So I I, I mean, the kids are not taken care of when they are forcibly taken from their parents and then like can't be reunited because they can't find their parents. That's not taking care of kids. Yeah, yeah. And it was just, and it happened again and again, you know, things like Trump bashing the House Democrats bill for COVID relief as a big bailout for badly run Democratic cities and states. It just gave Biden an easy opportunity to say, I don't see red states and blue states. Every state out there is in trouble. You know, things like on when Kristen Welker asked about the talk that parents of color have to have with their kids about how they present to police and how it's so much different than, you know, white children and white families. And Biden said, I understand. And he talked in detail about you know, how you can't reach for the glove box if you're black or you can't wear a hoodie. Trump said he understood. Then he immediately said, you know, with the exception of Abraham Lincoln, I've, I've done more for the black community than anyone else. It was just, it was just striking, I thought. And the fact is that it just underscored the, the campaign talking point of Biden's, which is that he has a stronger character than Trump and character is on the ballot. So I thought he played into Biden's hands with that. Yeah, and does everybody forget Lyndon Johnson, the passage of the Civil Rights Act, the passage of the Voting Rights Act? Well, yeah, um, I mean, the, know, it's, I it's mean, patently ridiculous. <laughs> it's right. patently ridiculous, especially when he says, not yeah. just the exception of Abraham Lincoln, but the possible exception. <laughs> the you know, possible, exception. possible exception. Yeah. All right. So, Andrew, you're our polling maven. They have uh, the polls, our polls with YouGov and along with, you know, most others show about a 10 point lead for Biden uh, nationally closer in the battleground states. Uh, but Biden competitive in Everyone that counts, if not slightly ahead in everyone that counts, the Trump folks keep insisting that they've got their own private polls that show them doing better. What are they talking about, if anything, that could explain such a discrepancy between every public poll that's out there and what they're saying about their private polls. Yeah, I don't I don't believe that. It, I mean, maybe they have numbers, but I, I can't imagine that they're reliable numbers. When you average together all public polls and one candidate has a 10-point lead, then you're talking about the, the things, the only thing that could be happening is that there's a 
much larger polling error than there was in 2016 in the exact same direction. That could change things on election day or an event between now and election day. Beyond that, I, I don't think that there's some you know, secret methodology that the, the Trump campaign has that, that's right on the money, whereas every other pollster is wrong. So are we looking at a Biden landslide right now? It's, it's possible. It's also possible that Trump wins. But I, you know, I, I tend to be of the school that looks at this probable, probabilistically, that looks mm -hmm. at the average of the polls, that says there's you know, a 10 to 15% chance that Trump could win. And that's real. That exists. But Biden has a much larger chance. And that's, you know, it's not satisfying to say, but that's, that's basically yeah. where we are. You know? And I, I, it'll be interesting to see. I think you probably see a little bit of tightening in the polls. You always do at the end. But the fact is that there are many fewer undecided voters than there were in 2016. And those 50 million plus people that have already voted. Plus yeah. early voters. And then the other thing, we found this in our last poll, and it's a really important point, and I'll leave it at that is that we didn't just ask about undecided voters, we asked about voters who could still change their minds. They're known as persuadable voters. And what we found was that 99% of Biden voters said they could, they would not and could not change their mind. 1% said they still could. Trump's numbers on that, 93%, absolutely certain. 7% said they could still change their mind. There are a lot more people on Trump's side who say they support him right now who are still open to being persuaded. So that's also not a good sign for Trump. He's going to have a very hard time picking off Biden voters, and there just aren't enough undecideds in the mix to really make up the difference. So I think we're looking at either there's a huge polling error, the likes of which we haven't seen in maybe ever, or something happens. And of this, these 50 some odd million Americans who've already voted, what do we know about their makeup, their party ID? Yeah, I haven't looked at the party ID, but in terms of the polling, when we ask people who you know have you already voted, who have you voted for, it is a massive margin for Biden, like seventy-five percent to twenty, low twenties. Um, so it's almost a, a three-to-one um, ratio for Biden. There's a little bit of a smaller ratio towards Trump for election day voters, maybe like two-thirds to towards Trump, um, but that pool also is shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. So there may be well, I was going to ask people. you, yeah, I mean, if you, yeah. we've had such a huge surge in mail-in voting, what kind of a surge could we have for in-person voting? Is there any way of gauging that? Yeah, I don't know. I, I know that enthusiasm is sky high on both sides. It's not like just Democrats are excited to vote in this election. Republicans are excited to vote too. So I think we're going to have a huge turnout and we'll see what happens. The weird, it's going to be that weird thing on election night where we've got all these early votes in and then the poll, the, the numbers are moving around. And So I was going to ask you, because I know we've asked you to do a kind of a voter's guide, cheat sheet for election night, what to look for, what are the kind of early indicators, the bellwethers. Give us a sense of some of the things you'll be looking for on election night that will let, let you know whether uh, this is uh, going to be A, either an early and decisive win by Joe Biden or if this is uh, something that is going to be a, you know, a nail biter that's going to take a lot longer uh, yeah. to resolve, or I think the least likely of possibilities, some early indication that Trump's going to win this thing. Yeah, yeah. So we've all sort of heard the disaster scenarios about, uh, you know, if it's really too close to call, 
in Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania, those tipping point states from 2016, uh, tons of court battles, Trump questioning the results, all kinds of things like that, and chaos for months. That very well might not happen. We might know very quickly, in fact, on election night, especially if Biden is headed towards a big victory, by watching what's happening in Florida, North Carolina, and Ohio, I think. Those are three states where they tabulate they process and start tabulating all of their early votes very quickly and start releasing those results immediately after the polls close. The polls close fairly early East Coast time, 7.30 or 8 in those states. And so it's possible we could just see, you know, if Biden wins Florida, the election could be over. If Biden wins Ohio, a state where he's basically tied with Trump after Trump won by eight points in 2016, the election could be effectively over. We might not. We're, we're going to be. We're going to be talking about this, Andrew, with uh, with Tom Perez. But this yeah. is a super important point that I did not fully realize until today, which is that because if Biden takes any of those three states, which are counting their early ballots, you know, right now as we speak, and we'll release them as soon as the polls close, this could actually be a early election night. But anyway, Andrew, we will be checking back with you. When's your when's your next and I think final poll? No, we got, we got two more. We got two more. Two so, more. Uh, two next more. poll. When? We're writing it now, and we're going to ask about mm-hmm. a lot of the stuff we discussed tonight or today, mm-hmm. and it will be out Monday morning. All right. Well, we will be checking back with you. Thanks, guys. We've now got with us the chairman of the Democratic National Committee, Tom Perez. Chairman Perez, welcome back to Skullduggery. Oh, it's great to be with both of you again. So much has happened since the last time we spoke. Yes, it has. And so much is about to happen. So as we speak, a little more than a week out from Election Day, uh, they were speaking the day after the last debate between the president and Joe Biden. How's it looking to you right now? Well, we know it's going to be close. Leave nothing to chance. Uh, What I like about our situation is, number one, uh, the vice president, uh, Biden, has been very clear in his closing argument. We, you know, we heard it, we saw it in the debate last night. You know, he has a plan to address all of the crises of the moment. We're a nation in crisis. We're a nation in multiple crises. And the voters want to know who, who's best positioned to get us out of it. And what we're doing now, we're in you know, massive get out the vote mode. And uh, we are, what I like about our situation is we have multiple pathways to 270. It's not simply Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, although we're doing you know, we're, we're very, very competitive there. Uh, we have multiple pathways, whether it's Ohio, North Carolina, Georgia, Florida, Iowa, uh, Texas, Arizona. And so you look at the early vote, you know, more than 50 million people have voted. We've already surpassed the early vote totals of 2016. And, and what's heartening when you dig into the numbers is that Democrats are outnumbering Republicans you know, just about everywhere. Uh, you look in Florida, and you see a net margin in terms of ballot returns of about 450,000 for the Democrats. And usually the Republicans in Florida have the lead going into election day historically. And, and we've been able to turn the table. So there's a ton of energy out there. We take nothing for granted. You know, we know this is gonna be close. I tell everyone, don't get on the polar coasters. Uh, you see a good poll, don't get giddy. You see a 
troubling poll. Don't so get too Can down. I just pick up on that? Because obviously the public polls show a, you know, a, a double digit lead, many of them for Vice President Biden nationally. Why are you saying you know it's going to be close? Well, we all uh, recall 2016, Michael, <laughs> and uh, we are—we yes, um, <laughs> never take anything for granted. I think there are some fundamentals that are very, very different this time around that work for us. I mean, you, you see the, for instance, the difference between uh, Biden and where we were in 2016 with uh, seniors, you know, in, in Florida, for instance, Trump won seniors four years ago by 17 points. And depending on what poll you look at now, Biden's up uh, by a few, or maybe Trump's up by a few. And if you just split the difference there, that's that's a 17-point swing. Let's say it's a dead heat with seniors for the sake of this discussion. That's a 17-point swing among 20% of the voters. Let's say there's 10 million voters in Florida. I think that's a fair estimate of what we'll see. So 2 million of those are seniors. And if you have a 17-point swing, if we continue to sustain that, that's a 340,000-vote swing with one constituency. And we're, and we're not simply competitive with seniors exclusively in Florida. We're competitive elsewhere. There's a lot of energy out there with young voters as well. And, and what we're doing between now and Election Day is making sure we maintain that enthusiasm. Uh, I've been doing a lot of work with the Latino vote. And uh, our benchmark is 2012, the Obama vote, because that's a higher bar. Uh, Obama got about 71% of the Latino vote in 2012. And I think Joe Biden is poised to hit that mark. We are looking at it uh, very regularly. And you look at the external polling in places like Arizona, especially, where Latinos are going to be roughly a quarter of the vote in Arizona. So again, head down, we understand that it's not, this race isn't won on national polls. This race is won state by state. And these battleground states are close. So, Michael, that's the reason I said what I said. North Carolina, somebody's going to win that by two points or less. Someone's going to win Florida by two points or less. Someone's going to win Georgia by two points or less. You know, this is the situation in many of these battleground states. And the same thing goes for the Senate. I'd rather be us than them because we have answers for the coronavirus. We're the party that's fighting for health care. We're the party that's fighting for a minimum wage. We're the party that listens to science. And the majority of the American people support what we're trying to do. We're trying to save coverage for people with pre-existing conditions. And that's why they suppress the vote. They don't want more people to vote. They want less people to vote. We had 138 million people vote four years ago. I think we're going to be closer to 150 million this time around. I mean, we're breaking records. Texas is already at 65% of their 2016 turnout. That's eye-popping. And the early vote days that are the biggest days are yet to come in Texas. You know, one of the things that is different from 2016 in ways that cut against the Democrats and that goes to the heart of your mission as chairman of the DNC is Republicans seem to have a voter registration lead in some key states, uh, Pennsylvania, for example. And that's one of the things that keep some nervous Democrats up at night. What, what is that about? Because, you know, in, in previous cycles, it seemed like 
The Democratic Party was was way out registering voters than the Republicans were. So what's going on there? Well, I, I think actually you have to look behind the numbers and look behind the numbers over the last three years. Uh, I'll give you an example. You know, more Latinos voted in 2018 in Arizona than voted in 2016 in Arizona. That's an eye-popping statistic. And a big part of it was voter registration. We banked a lot of, when we started at the DNC and, and with the broader ecosystem, we were registering voters starting in 2017. And we, made, we had great success. So when you look at the aggregate data over the last four years, Dan, what you see is actually we've done quite well. And you know, we, we can do a state-by-state -state comparison. We've, we expanded our voter registration advantage in North Carolina, for instance. We were registering voters in Arizona in 2017. You look at the vote by mail advantages in Florida. You know, we were registering voters early in Florida. And it, four years ago, the vote by mail signups were, uh, we had a 20,000 person advantage. This year, there's a 950,000 person advantage in signups. Now that's different from voter registration. So I, I wanna be clear about that. But when you look at the aggregate voter registration data, over the last four years. I think that's the most important thing because these folks who voted in Arizona in 2018 are coming out again. And so I think that banking that is really important. Now, when COVID started, some of our face-to-face -face work could not take place. Republicans were more reckless. And so we, you know, we did a lot of uh, online voter registration and there are organizations like Voto Latino, uh, uh, my colleague, Maria Teresa Kumar, they, they're entirely digital in terms of their voter registration work. So I actually think we've held our own over the last four years. Let me just uh, ask you a quick follow-up on vote by mail. And I wonder if um, there's any sense at all in which Democrats maybe leaned in a little too hard on, on voting by mail as opposed to voting by person, making you more vulnerable to challenges after the, the election. I think this is particularly true in some of the Rust Belt states uh, that are so crucial to uh, Vice President Biden's electoral chances here. How do you respond to that? Well, let me, uh, let me give you a Rust Belt example, and then let me give you a Florida example. In Wisconsin, as of yesterday, we have four, it was one, roughly 1.2 million votes have been banked in Wisconsin, 1.2 million. And roughly a million of that is absentee ballots, vote by mail, to use your example. What we have going in Wisconsin, we have a spectacular party chair there, uh, Ben Wickler. Uh, we have a very aggressive, what we call chase and cure program. And so, uh, we have a handle, and I literally was having a conversation earlier today with Ben about how are we doing on rejected ballots. And across every single state, we have a Chase and Cure program, and they're aggressively working that in Wisconsin. And so we get lists every day of people whose, whose vote, and, and it may be because they, the witness forgot to sign it. The Republicans put a bunch of requirements in place because they wanna make it hard and they wanna have high rejection rates. And that's why we have what we call these chase and cure programs. Every Tuesday in North Carolina, we get a list from all the county boards of elections of votes that are problematic. And so we run our own programs. 
in Florida, for instance, uh, the same thing. So the rejection rates on vote-by-mail ballots so far in Florida, and again, you're talking about millions of ballots that have already been uh, put in. The rejection rate so far is about 0.4%, so a little less than one half of 1%. And we're running aggressive programs on that, and we have the luxury of time right now. And we, we knew that we had to plan for this, uh, Dan. Your question's really important because we have the scale, you know, one half of 1% sounds like, okay, that's a low rejection rate, but it's still, you know, 15,000 uh, voters. And so county by county, uh, we're going to these voters explaining, and so are the county elections officials. But frankly, I don't wanna leave anything to chance. So that's why we're running our own program. And I, what I've described to you is in place in every single state, because our goal is to get it down to zero. I want every ballot to be counted. And we recognize that when you have exponential increases in vote by mail, you have to build a muscular, uh, what again, what I call chase and cure program. And that's the advantage of this year. We've, we've been planning for all of this. And the we is not just the Biden campaign and the DNC, it's the broader uh, ecosystem. And we have armies of people who are chasing these ballots. You know, there's a lot of nightmare scenarios for litigation battles after the election, but it occurs to me with these early voting numbers being as high as they are, and as I understand it, correct me if I'm wrong, in North Carolina and Florida, they're already counting those ballots, right? They're counting them in, in real time as they come in. So it's a possibility that on election night, once the polls close, we could get the nu large numbers <laughs> from Florida and North Carolina right, right away. Right. And if you carry either of those, effectively, the election's over. We could know right away, based on what the numbers are from this early voting, whether Biden has won or not. One of the things that we've done during this cycle is I have a, we basically have a matrix of all the battleground states. So I can tell you what the rules are for ballot counting just about everywhere. So for instance, let's take Florida. They've already started counting ballots. And obviously they don't announce these until after right. election time. But assuming, the, assuming that we don't have anything extraordinary happen, and, and let me qualify that by saying we've, <laughs> we've had a little history of extraordinary <laughs> yes. in Florida. So right. Before your listeners wonder, what, what, what was I drinking before this? <laughs> I want to acknowledge that. But we have every expectation that by 10 o'clock to 10.30 East Coast time on election night, uh, we will have, uh, the Florida officials will have reported out, you know, somewhere in the vicinity of 80 to 90% of the vote. Because you look at the data right now, and let's assume about 10 million people vote. Before election day, it's probably going to be 70% of the people at a minimum will have voted already before election day. So those votes will be tabulated by COB, and uh, you can report that. North Carolina, another example of that. And let me give you two more examples of relevance, because if you're listening to this podcast and you're trying to figure out what should I be following on election night, the question you asked is a really, really good question. Ohio closes at 7.30. They're having a record turnout in the early vote and vote by mail. And they actually have a governor, a Republican governor, but you know he has not demonized vote by mail. The Secretary of State there 
has made it really hard for people to vote. You know, one lot, one drop box per county, which is ridiculous. But I, I won't get into that. But anyway, we should have, again, a lot of numbers out of Ohio by, say, 10, 11 East Coast time. And then one more state I want to bring up, and that is Arizona. They're already counting ballots. And in Arizona, the estimates are that 80 to 90 percent of the vote is going to be before Election Day, 80 to 90 percent. 900,000 votes as of Thursday have already been cast in Maricopa County, which is the mother load. 62% of the vote historically comes out of one county in Arizona. I have to say, this is pretty significant because we've all been talking for so long about this long drawn out process. And as you're laying it out here, it may not be drawn out at all. We, we, well, we could people, the, the, yeah. the key here, though, uh, yeah. Dan, is people have to get out there and vote. And that's what, you know, we're all about make a plan, get out there and vote. Whatever option you want, get out there and vote. But I'll, I'll tell you, by about 1130 East Coast time, because on Election Day, Arizona will be on the Mountain Standard Time. So their polls close at 10 o'clock East Coast time. And by 11.30, we should have north of 50 to 60% of the vote in Arizona. And the thing about Arizona is, if uh, Joe Biden wins Maricopa County, then I think you know there's a very high probability that he'll win Arizona. We're making a mental note, we're gonna be calling you at 11.30 at night on election night to check in and see yes. if, your, uh, if your numbers are holding up here. But the premise of, of Isikoff's point here is this would be if Biden wins Correct. Uh, some or all of these states, right? Because if Trump wins them, Biden still has a path to victory, but there are a lot of other states that don't do pre-canvassing. Right. They don't. So what are some of those states right. uh, that won't be counting until until Election Day and then beyond? Right. And, and that's the point that um, that was the second point I wanted to make, which is there are some states that aren't going to finish counting. You know, we, we in the leave it a beaver world that I grew up in, you know, 98, 99% of the people voted on election day. Walter Cronkite would announce the results at 11 o'clock and we all went to bed on election night knowing who the president was. That's not the world we live in. And we shouldn't be waxing nostalgic for that world. We have taken steps across this country to make it easier for people to vote by giving them options. And we had a really important decision come out of North Carolina, which is why we may not know the winner in North Carolina. You know, North Carolina is a razor thin state. It, it, is a, it is a jump ball right now in North Carolina. And as a result of a decision by the Fourth Circuit Federal Court of Appeals, uh, a 12 to three decision. So it was a decisive decision in the appellate court. Uh, votes that are postmarked by election day, they will have a number of days to be received. That's a good thing. We wanna make sure not only that everybody votes, but every vote is counted. And in places like North Carolina, hopefully in Wisconsin, we're in the middle of a lawsuit. We're going to find out from the Supreme Court shortly about the result of that. In Pennsylvania, you have till Friday to receive ballots postmarked by Election Day. And so Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, I have every expectation that at 11 o'clock at night, we're still not going to know who the winner is, because in those states, uh, by law, they can't start counting the ballots until 7 a.m. Parenthetically, that's a silly rule. 
And it shouldn't be that way. All that does is make people's jobs harder. And in Pennsylvania, Governor Wolf has been trying to get the Republican legislature to agree to allow them to start counting the ballots five days before the election. We're not going to release the results, but Republicans don't want to do that. And here's why. It's very nefarious. They want, there, there's a decided advantage in vote by mail among Democrats. It's like, it's, it's, um, you know, the majority of those ballot requests are Democratic ballots. And they want to be able to show, oh, at 11 o'clock at night, oh, Donald Trump is still ahead, even though there's 2 million votes that haven't been tabulated. So it's very, it's silly, it's nefarious, it's all about, um, they're trying to create a false narrative on election night. But the thing I'm trying to say to uh, listeners here is, you should not be concerned if it takes longer for votes to be counted, because we want every vote to be counted. Remember 2018, California's votes were trickling in 10, 12, 14 days after. And as every vote was counted, we were winning more seats in Congress because we made, we made a structure there that allowed for so many people to participate. So this is the world we live in. Uh, we may not know who the winner is by midnight on election night. But if, you know, again, like you pointed out before, we will have some clues because from Florida, because of Ohio, because of Arizona and the way they uh, report out, and possibly North Carolina, although frankly, I'm not sure I would put North Carolina in that category because of the, the closeness of the race and the ballot receipt decision, which is a good decision. Okay, I gotta ask you about the Senate. So Democrats will need, will in all likelihood, will need to flip four seats, assuming that Doug Jones in Alabama does not win. I'm sure you're not gonna concede that right now. And assuming that Joe Biden wins the election. So which are the four Senate seats that you think right now are most likely to flip to the Democratic well, side? The beauty of the Senate is the same, is very similar to our situation in the pathway to 270. We have multiple pathways to 270, uh, as we've discussed in this podcast. And we have multiple pathways to a Senate majority. I mean, we have um, Arizona and Colorado where we have two really strong, we have strong candidates everywhere, uh, but we have the fundamentals there are solid. We're not taking anything for granted. Uh, we have opportunities in Maine with Sarah Gideon, who continues to be ahead. We have opportunities in Iowa, where Teresa Greenfield actually knows what the price of corn was and uh, what the price of soybeans were. And her opponent didn't know what the price of soybeans were. That's a bad idea to not know that when you're in a farm state like Iowa. Uh, we have opportunities in Kansas uh, where Barbara Boulier, a, a, a former a Republican, a medical doctor, is in a dead heat race there. Uh, we have two opportunities in Georgia. And again, dead heat races. Uh, North Carolina, we are, you know, again, another really, really close race. You know, you move to the Pacific Northwest and you have both Steve Bullock in Montana. Someone's going to win that race by a few thousand votes. It's a, it's a really close race. You know, that's what, that was the case with John Tester in his most recent reelect. Uh, Montana has a very high union density and Steve Bullock has a really good relationship with the labor movement there. I think they're going to be really, really helpful for him. And there's a and I, I'm a big believer that good governance is great politics. 
Steve Bullock has been a great steward of that state during this pandemic, and voters appreciate that. Uh, you move up to Alaska, there's a sleeper race if I've ever seen one. Again, another medical doctor running. His father was very involved in Alaska politics a generation ago, and that's a dead heat race. Uh, Doug Jones and Mike Espy in Alabama and Mississippi, uh, we helped, we invested a lot in Doug Jones in 2017. We continue to invest a lot there. And for both of those races, the challenge is the same. It's about turning out African-American voters at scale, like Doug did in 2017 and, and what they're both in the process of doing now, and having enough moderate white voters and other voters to come around. And you I know, I know Isakoff's got one last question, but I just what you just reminded me of one thing that I wanted to quickly ask you, which is you mentioned the African American vote. And one thing that we've noticed is Donald Trump continues to outperform by a little bit, not a lot, but with African American voters, particularly with male African American voters. Why do you think that is? Well, again, you're, you're talking about African American women for Doug Jones were 96% and African American men, I think, were 89%. Well, I'm talking about African-American male support for Donald no, I Trump. I understand. And so you have uh, that high single digit. It's, uh, the the African-American female support is stratospheric, and the African-American male support, if someone told me I was at 88%, I'd say that's pretty good. But we still have work to do. That's why you know, we have initiatives. You have people like LeBron James, out there. We have a, an initiative called Chop It Up. These are conversations of, with African-American men about politics. And we've been engaging surrogates across America having these conversations. We also have the same challenge with Latina women are in the same stratosphere. And there are those disparities with Latin men. And we're doing the same very targeted investments in those communities. But the, you know, the, that's where things like the debate, I think, actually help us last night. Because when you have a president who looks people in the eye and tells them that I'm the best president for African-Americans since Abraham Lincoln, that is one of, that, that might be the most out, he's made so many outrageous statements, we could have a <laughs> spirited battle as to which was the most outrageous statement. I mean, you all remember the Central Park Five, where Donald Trump was race baiting in that case. I mean, he went to communities across the country in 2016 and said to African American voters, what do you have to lose? We now know the answer to that, your lives. Look at COVID and the disproportionate impact on African Americans, your jobs, there's been a, almost a 100% increase in African-American unemployment under Donald Trump. Your civil rights, look at what he says. He, he can't utter the word Black Lives Matter. Every time you hear Black Lives Matter, you hear from him all the dog whistle politics. And so you know, people are really, really motivated. And, and the fact that we are not content with 88% shows the work that we are doing. We are leaving nothing to chance. We want to persuade everyone. And we have been working our tails off. And to finish the Senate piece, because there were you know, one or two more, uh, my good friend Jamie Harrison in South Carolina, if you told me he was you know, going to be in a dead heat race with Lindsey Graham, that's remarkable. And that race is about integrity. Jamie has it, and Lindsey Graham doesn't. 
And because Jamie has been such a prolific fundraiser, he has raised his name ID. He was like 40% four months ago. Now he's like 90%. So people know who he is. They know who he's fighting for. And there's a lot of Republicans who, uh, the former head of Michelin Tire North America, who was Lindsey Graham's finance chair for two cycles, is cut a really compelling ad for Jamie Harrison. And it was about integrity. It was about how can you be close to John McCain and then you desecrate his memory after his death. And there's a lot of military voters down in South Carolina. They'll remember that. So, you know, I'm, I'm bullish on the Senate. I don't know which ones of those races, you know, can we run the table? Well, anything's possible. But when you have all those dead heat races, that's why I get back to what I, my most important point is, which is we got to get out there and vote. We left too many votes on the table. I, I was talking to folks in Texas, you know, Latinos, 40% of Latinos voted in 2016 in the presidential, 40%. In 2018, 800,000 more Latinos turned out in Texas. And Beto lost then in 2014. And Beto lost by only 200,000 votes. But 3.5 million Latinos in 2018 in Texas were eligible to vote and did not. The possibilities are limitless. MJ Hager can win that race if we continue to see dramatic increases in turnout, especially in communities of color. And, and that's where Joe Biden comes in, because Joe Biden has built a remarkable coalition of hardcore Democrats, independents, party of Lincoln Republicans, John McCain Republicans. John McCain beat Barack Obama in 2008 among Cuban American voters, almost two to one. Cindy McCain is a major surrogate for us in South Florida with Cuban voters. Cuban voters love John McCain. They love Cindy McCain. And this is the kind of micro-targeting that we are doing right now to make sure we're speaking to everyone, we're speaking to the issues they care about, we're speaking to the concerns that some African-American men have about economic opportunity and you know, access to that. And we're doing it in authentic ways. And we've, we didn't just start it a month ago. We've been doing this for three years. And I'm hopeful that these investments are going to pay off for us. But only if people vote. That's why I make a plan. Go to IWillVote.com. Right, last question for you, Mr. Chairman. Have you voted already? And uh, if not, how do you intend to vote? I did vote already because I'm on the road by a mail. lot. Uh, I voted okay. by mail. I, I, I actually dropped it in a Dropbox that... <laughs> from my house. And uh, having right. that Dropbox was uh, uh, my method of choice. Have you, tr have you tracked your ballot? Do you know that it's been processed? Yes. Have you tracked it? Yes. Well, and that's, people ought to understand that, that they can do that in a lot of states. Until 1130 election night, when we're going to be checking in with you, we thank you for uh, joining us. And uh, right. uh, we will uh, certainly be having you back on Skullduggery that night. Well, we look forward okay. to it. Get out there and vote. Iwillvote.com. Make a plan. <laughs> okay. Thanks a lot. Thanks Always a lot, good to Mr. talk Chairman. to you. Great to talk to both of you. Thanks for all you do.